0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Eric McCardle, and I'm excited to welcome Eric Townsend to this afternoon's Keeping It Simple. Eric is a retired hedge fund
1: manager that currently hosts popular Macro Voices podcast, of which I'm a subscriber. So thank you, Eric. And recently, Eric released a documentary called Energy Transition Crisis, which I strongly recommend watching after this conversation.
0: As a reminder, nothing said on today's show should be considered investment advice. And with that, over to you, Mike. All right. Fantastic.
2: Eric, thank you very much for introducing us and Eric Townsend. Thank you very much for joining us. Harley Bassman has disappeared on us there. Oh, there he is. Okay. How are you doing, Harley? All's fine, baby. You got to be feeling pretty good about uh, your mortgage strategy. That's launched with a bang.
3: Uh, it has. It has. So I'm feeling pretty good. Yep.
2: All right. Now I just want to highlight and I will, I, I know that usually I give Harley a very hard time for misunderstanding inflation. But what he has understood brilliantly over the last, last year or so has actually been the rates market, and now uh, with the latest launch, he's actually taken the other side of the trade. He's basically, how would you describe this hedging strategy? Um, but this is this is really a strategy that benefits from staying higher. Is kind of the easiest way to think about it. Is that would you agree with that?
3: That's pretty cool. It, it, it's a buy right. It's effectively yeah. a buy right on Treasuries because uh, there's no credit. I mean, the thing yields, I mean, current coupon mortgages yield 100 over IG credit. So you get 100 over same duration with with no credit risk going into, as you have suggested, a uh, harder landing going forward. But
2: it's going to be really interesting. I mean, this is really the key question is is that underlying dynamic. Now, at the same time, Eric has joined us. And Eric, I got to tell you, like Eric McCardle, I am a subscriber and regular listener to your podcast. I've appeared a number of times, as has Harley. Um, but your work that you've introduced here on the energy transition crisis, and you really have focused on the dynamics of the transition away from fossil fuels. You've been extraordinarily generous in your sharing of the information on this. And from my perspective, like I watched this thing and I just got pissed. Right. I, I, I'll be really straightforward. I got pissed because the simple answer is we have gone on a 50 year detour, uh, which basically means my entire life. That's about half of Harley's um but uh come on harley there you go it took you a second all right but the you know the dynamics are really straightforward we need more energy we need not just to introduce um uh renewables we actually need to dramatically increase the quantity of energy and i think you've hit on the key points that most of us who have spent any time looking at this really deeply understand There's one chart that I wanted to highlight uh, before we even began the presentation and get to your charts that, to me, is the chart that almost nobody seems to fully comprehend in terms of how important this actually is, which, of course, is now not showing up properly on my screen. So we're going to go with, oh, there we go. All right. Fantastic. All right. So this is a chart of U.S. consumption per capita. Just to orient people here, this is looking at from 1950 until today, and it's looking at the per capita consumption in the United States of primary energy sources. So so this would include fossil fuels. It would include renewables. It would include nuclear, for example. It would include hydropower, obviously, anything else that, that you would look at. And this is expressing it in a common unit of MMBTU or millions of British thermal units. And just to orient people, these are millions of MMBTU. In other words, trillion MMBTU is what we're looking at. The amazing thing is, is on a per capita basis, we peaked in 1973-74 in the United States at somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 trillion MMBTU per capita. And today we're running somewhere below that at about 285, right? Now, whether that's exactly correct or not is somewhat irrelevant. But the really critical thing for people to understand is this is why life feels harder than it should. Because energy at the end of the day is the ability to do work. And if we had maintained the trend that had been in place from 1950 until 1974, and you'll notice I actually undercut some of those points, this is a genuine trend, We would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 trillion MMBTU today. Now, the direct energy cost of that is only about $17,000. But the energy power, what you could do with that, that's 12 and a half hours of private jet flight per year, 1,500 hours of passenger travel on a Boeing 787, or going to the moon and back twice. It's almost impossible to explain how much we have been shortchanged in terms of the capacity to do work, to raise our standard of livings, relative to the trajectory that seemed written in stone starting in 1950 and by 1974, and by and large, the discovery of fossil fuels makes this trend look much smoother back all the way into the 19th century. That constantly rising trend, only interrupted by things like the Great Depression, et cetera, is really what we're talking about here, and you're saying Look, if we wanna maintain this level, we have to move off of fossil fuels because everybody around the world wants something like this. My emphasis is you guys have no idea how much you've been shortchanged here.
1: Oh, and- I couldn't agree more, Mike. I mean, the, the if we can go back to that slide for just a second. Yeah. I, I, I like to think about this in terms of the, the single most important lesson that I've ever learned in my life is that human prosperity is a function of the abundance and low cost of energy available to the economy. 250 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation because all of us would be busy working on the farm. There was no choice but for everyone to have to work on the farm just to make the food we needed to survive. Now we have got we think that we live in a much better uh, world, but as you're showing on this chart, and it's a beautiful way to illustrate it, we had a, a, a just a profound growth of human prosperity right up until 1970, when we deviated away from the solution that we already had to our energy problems. And that happened because of sleazy politics. It was to protect the U.S. oil and gas industry that nuclear energy was basically uh, sabotaged.
2: Yeah, and I and I really think that's actually really critical for people to understand, right? This, this was an absolute choice. It was a terrible one. It was built on the Carl Sagan... You know, demon in the darkness type framework where people genuinely did not understand what they were doing. Um, I also want to just emphasize and this, and Eric, I think would agree with this and just, uh, you know, just intuitively that when we do something like this, we're actually denying the basis of our humanity, right? This is cribbed from Thomas Craft, The Energetics of Uniquely Human Subsistence Strategies. So you can tell the sort of fun (laughs) things I like to read um you know and the researchers suggest humans are not cost economizers when you see this chart this is all about scarcity this is all about cost economization that's not what we do we operate in high throughput ways that lead to large payoffs right that is how we differed from the pri- from the primates and the great apes we produce so much surplus that it allowed us to do all the things that we talk about We want to do more of socialize and enjoy each other's company, engage in organizational activities that allow us to increase the quantity of calories that we're consuming for our brains, whether that's in physical nutritional form or whether that's in the form of interacting with other really smart people. So I I just, I can't overemphasize this enough, right? The reason we're struggling with all this stuff is because we have actually been led to believe we live in an era of surplus and the reality is we live in an era of scarcity.
3: Mike, 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 okay. and Mike one second. Here. Mike and Eric, I, I hate to be the sand of the Vaseline here, but should one. Oh, uh, you
2: love being sand of the Vaseline.
3: Shouldn't one, couldn't one just say that we're becoming more efficient? I mean, if you're bringing in public transportation, they bring in washing machines that have a, a better score. I mean, I think if you ran your chart from 1880 to 1930, you'd see all the poor horses being put out of business, but the cars. I mean, it doesn't strike me as being a a public policy bad. It strikes me as maybe we actually policy.
2: done- it's a, it's a public policy terrible because when you actually are, what you're actually talking about is introducing artificial scarcity. If you want to economize, right? Efficiency is a great thing to achieve, and it does emerge in periods of shortage. But we fundamentally move in waves of innovation and discovery followed by waves of economization and substitution. And we've been trapped for 50 years, basically trying to figure out how to do what we were already doing in the 1970s.
3: Didn't we go, isn't that sharp breaking the curve right when Carter went and deregulated the airlines? So what if instead of driving to Florida with the kids in the station wagon, you flew down there and also your car is more efficient. You're getting 30, 40 miles a gallon. I mean, my 64 and a half Mustang gets eight miles to the gallon. I mean, I mean, I see your point you're making here, but I'm not totally convinced that there's not an efficiency argument here. Well, there is an efficiency
1: argument, Arlie, and there's nothing wrong with efficiency. But the problem is that we're being forced to forfeit human prosperity. And we've been hypnotized into this idea that, hey, look, everybody's got to do their part to conserve energy. Why don't you do more of your part by, you know, putting your thermostat down or turning off your lights or whatever? Hey, wait a minute. What are the reasons for that? Well, because the way we produce energy is polluting and it's also dependent on scarce resources. It doesn't have to be. We could have essentially unlimited energy that is much cheaper than energy that we get from fossil fuels today and which doesn't pollute the environment and where there's no reason not to just enjoy using twice as much of it. But we're conditioned to believe there's something inherently wrong with that. The only reason there's something wrong with that is because we get our energy from a source that pollutes the environment and depletes a very scarce resource. We need to stop doing those two things so that we can enjoy all the energy we want.
3: I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm I'm just not convinced that that, I think that turns a non sequitur to that story. But go on, Mike, please.
2: But but the 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 point is, Harley, and actually, again, this is perfect perfect, because I love having these types of conversations. Remember that what we've actually what we're seeing in this chart is that the only possible way, the only vector that was available to us to improve living standards was through efficiency. There's absolutely no reason that has to be the only vector we can use. Open up both, right? And the reason why, and again, like just to come back to this, you know, said more simply, energy is life, right? And we have denied ourselves access to it for all the reasons that Eric's gonna talk about. when we start talking about what is going to work, Eric again, you know you've laid this out, the answer is simply nuclear. <laughs> Expand.
1: Well, let's let's start with we, we need to we need to recognize that for uh, you know, the, the entire age of oil, we've been slowly depleting a finite resource. It's not gone yet. In fact, there's probably half of the recoverable oil is still in the earth's crust. But the cheap and easy stuff where you just drill a hole in the ground and oil comes gushing out, that's long gone. We're spending much more money now with hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling and deep offshore and all of these fancy technologies. That's just gonna get more expensive over time. Energy costs more than twice as much as it did when I was a kid. And that's after adjusting for inflation. When I, when Harley and I were kids, well, I don't know. When Harley was a kid, they probably didn't have energy yet. But when I was a kid, gasoline there you go, Eric. cost thirty cents. You figured cents a this gallon. program out, perfect. <laughs> so you know, gasoline cost thirty cents a gallon when I was a kid. Adjusted for inflation, that's about two bucks a gallon today. And in reality, gasoline costs about twice that you got to remember, when you adjust for inflation, a lot of the cause of that inflation was increasing cost of energy. So we wouldn't have had all of the inflation if not for the energy cost. What are we going to do to fix it? Everybody's favorite is wind and solar. We've spent $4.1 trillion in the last 20 years on, uh, on renewable energy. We've reduced the amount of fossil fuels that we consume by precisely zero. We have not, every year the the demand goes up. Now, the demand for fossil fuels may be going up more slowly as a result of renewables, but it cost us $4.1 trillion to get there. After we spoke earlier this week off the air, Mike, I did a a little bit more cockpit, uh, I'm sorry, cocktail napkin uh, figuring, I have a business plan in my mind to completely replace fossil fuels with nuclear. What does it take to build all those power plants, do the whole thing with nuclear? I come up with, I think it's doable for about $287 billion. That's replace all fossil fuel use with nuclear. It'd take about 20 years to do it because it's a big job. But it would cost a small fraction of what we've already spent on renewables. So and the, the other thing to not lose sight of is, Everybody's obsessed with climate change, that's great, if, if that's your agenda, fine, well, you know, we can be friends, but I think it's more important to focus on making energy that's cheaper than energy from oil and gas. And you know, doing it with nuclear will achieve the same green goals that wind and solar achieves. We get rid of dependence on fossil fuels, but we can make that energy much more inexpensive with nuclear than we ever could with wind and solar. Geothermal, deep geothermal is a really cool idea, Uh, going back to the last slide. The thing is, it's just not ready yet. If we had a major breakthrough in drilling technology, I've got a whole episode in the docu-series about this, it might become economic, but it just isn't now. Hydropower is pretty cool, but hydropower has already been built out in all of the places in the world that are conducive to it. That leaves nuclear, and the problem with nuclear And it's a really serious problem. It's not the the meltdowns and the things that you hear about and the fears that people have about nuclear waste. Those problems have already been solved. The unsolved problem, and I want to be part of solving it, frankly, is the cost and schedule overruns. Nobody has ever built a large-scale conventional nuclear power plant on time and on schedule. And I think that this new trend we're calling small modular reactors has the potential to completely change that. So we'll be able, uh, yes, this is this is the slide, we'll be able to make energy from nuclear, which is both completely green and clean so that we're not polluting the environment, we're not contributing to greenhouse gases, but it costs less than energy from coal and gas, not more. That's what now we wait need a to second. get to. No, wait,
2: wait a second though, Eric, because like you're talking about things like fusion or thorium, these are all technologies that need to be developed. Right, I'm not is... talking
1: about those things yet, Mike. We could do this with oh. pressurized water uranium reactors, and I don't okay. think that's the right way to do it. But you could, and, and, and in you fact, in, and, and, and and I think the the big key to this is you've got to figure out how to take the minimum of seven years to build one of these conventional nuclear power plants and dramatically cut the the time to, to, to build. And I contend that using SMRs, we can build gigawatt power plants in less than a
2: year. So first of all, there's a lot of other people that agree with you on this, right? And what you're actually describing is effectively the difference between a custom built automobile in 1900 and a Model T in 1910, right? Build it in fractions of the amount of time by automating and standardizing the processes and turning it into a manufactured product, exactly like we did with shale, where we took the number of wells that we drill for oil and gas and we exploded it, moving away from the, the deep offshore you know, well drilling that takes 10 years and runs fantastically over budget, but is offset by the increase in oil price that occurs over that time period, or at least had been offset by it. Um, Now you're talking about a totally different model where effectively you build 100 megawatt modules that you can then assemble into gigawatt type plants.
1: And you build those 100 megawatt uh, small modular nuclear reactors in the form factor of a standard 40 foot shipping container. So you can put it on a container ship and send it anywhere in the world using the existing infrastructure for logistics that we already
2: have. So, Look, this sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, what's the catch? Well, why, the can't catch we, is, why, why aren't we doing this already? The, a lot of
1: people want to, and the catch is 100% about the government standing in the way. So first of all, uh, yeah, let's, let's, uh, uh,
2: yep.
1: there we go. Yep, that's the one. Uh, The the problem is we have nuclear engineers and entrepreneurs who are proposing these small modular reactors, including, you know, some of them are focusing on small applications. They want to have a small or a community reactor. Personally, I'm not particularly persuaded by that argument. I think about the whole value of SMR, small modular reactors, where if a module is 100 megawatts and I want to build a three gigawatt power plant, well, I need at least 30 of those things. And Actually, the, the 100 megawatts is thermal energy. you got to convert that to electricity. There's some uh, efficiency losses there, so you need more than 30 of them. But the point is, as many shipping containers as you need to send to build whatever size power plant you want, the people that have already conceived those ideas and proposed them are not being funded. There are a handful of startups that are doing this. They're all the pet projects of billionaires. Why? because no sane uh, institutional investor could ever justify well, we want to fund a company that's building a prototype of a machine that's illegal to operate on every country in earth, uh, in every country on earth and there's no regulator on earth that even has a process for regulating or or even permitting and allowing the operation of the so-called new technologies. Now, the new technology, what people call advanced nuclear or Generation 4, that's a code word for we're not talking about 1950s technology anymore. We've moved into 1960s technology. That's like 50 years ago. That, or 50, 60 years ago. That's when the, the technology that we need was first developed. It was never commercialized because it was killed for entirely political reasons. What we need to do is we need a completely different attitude from the government where nuclear regulators see their job as being part of the energy transition solution rather than being at the core of the problem, which is exactly what we have today.
2: So a couple of quick questions there. Uh, one, Corey Smith asks, you know, doesn't nuclear also pollute, just create space between the energy production and the recognition of? of the pollution. This is the nuclear waste that lasts for 10,000 years. Um, and he then observes that as humans, we don't have a tr- great track record for taking the necessary steps not to ruin the environment. I just want to actually, before you address the first part of that question, I want to remind Corey that we actually have an incredible track record at addressing pollution where we have the surplus energy that allows us to do so. So if you look for places around the world that are polluted, you will find they are subsistence regions, areas that are willing to trade environmental degradation for the opportunity to survive. And that can start with the Anastasi Indians in the you know, pre-Columbian era, and it can extend all the way to most parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, et cetera, today, that are the repositories for a lot of the pollution that we engage in. Those who tuned into Doomberg last week or last month We'll remember that the clear observation was effectively traditional manufacturing depends on who allows you to pollute the most. The more energy you have, the more mitigation of the damage that you cause in the production process you can engage in. So I I wanted to hit on that part. Why don't you address the nuclear waste that's going to be sitting in all of our bathtubs?
1: Well, first of all, nuclear waste isn't nearly as big of a problem as people perceive it to be. I still think that we should solve it, and it's very easily solved with known technology. First of all, 90% of, uh, I'm sorry, 95% of nuclear waste is perfectly good uranium, which can and should be recycled and recovered and used to make fuel for new reactors. So there's a recycling process there is a little bit of risk inherent to it, because if you're operating that, res- that nuclear waste reprocessing facility, there is potentially a nuclear proliferation risk. If you, were, if you wanted to, uh, in that process, you could figure out a way to separate plutonium out of the waste and you know try to use that to make a bomb or something. So there needs to be oversight of that reprocessing and the way that that's been dealt with is because that oversight is needed people just don't bother they end up uh you know stockpiling the nuclear waste at the nuclear plant it really doesn't cause nearly as many problems as people think it does but there's lots of good solutions to this there's a, a new type of reactor called a burner reactor which can actually consume spent nuclear fuel waste this is of nuclear fuel waste that's presently in storage all around the world from the last 60 years of operating nuclear power plants could all be consumed as fuel to run nuclear reactors of the future. Now, we would need to get regulators out of the way of progress because the entrepreneurs that want to build those burner reactors can't get funding. Why not? Because the investors are smart enough to know that the regulators are not ready to get their heads around burner reactors and don't really understand how they work yet. So eventually, when we get over those regulatory problems, we're going to be able to to use up not only the new waste, but all of the old waste from yesteryear. Uh, The other thing is when we get to a thorium rather than uranium fuel cycle, the waste from that type of reactor only has about a 300-year active period as opposed to 100,000 years. So we've dramatically reduced the toxicity and the duration of that waste. We still don't have to store it for 300 years. You want to build some burner reactors so that you can consume it and use the the actinides, which is in transuranics, which is what's in that waste, the really nasty stuff. You can use that as fuel to make energy with. We just need to take these technologies, which people already know how to build, and get the government out of the way of making progress, which is where we're stuck right now.
3: Eric, we had a, a poll we put out where we were asking what was the, the hindrance and the biggest one, I seem to agree with you, that is political. But I'm curious, is it really, are the politicians really wrong? Not that I have a whole respect for them. I'm just thinking like, you know, in uh, between San Diego and L.A., there's the no-free plant. And that is on by the ocean and the 405, the main freeway between L.A. and San Diego. And the left of that is the mountains. And you close off the 405 at that choke point. It's pretty grim. They're kind of almost cutting off most of Southern California, the whole Southland over there. I'm curious if if, if we're if they're being crazy or not in 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 down same thing with Sorum in Long Island. I mean, is it a situation where they're not that dangerous but we put them in the wrong places or is just misplaced fear?
1: Well, first of all, the nuclear power plants uh, that were built in the 1960s and 70s are not without some pretty significant problems. They didn't have the automation and passive safety systems that are uh, being built in new nuclear power plants today. And the way you get to situations like Three Mile Island and Fukushima really have to do with human error more than anything else. And it's because they were manually operated plants with big control rooms full of very complex and confusing instrumentation. Uh, We're moving to fully automated, computerized, Uh, nuclear reactors that just don't have those problems. But something I think is even more pertinent to your question is there's a a young man uh, called Mark Nelson, who's kind of a a nuclear advocate, young guy in his early 30s. And he's done a bunch of work on this. And what he's concluded is that nuclear, uh, nuclear energy fear is mostly a function of nuclear weapons fear. And what he found is that generationally, Uh, boomers and Xers who were brought up to fear nuclear attacks from the Soviet Union and so forth are just not able to process the concept. You you, you explain to them, look, here's the real facts on nuclear energy. It's not a nuclear bomb. There's no risk of it blowing up like a nuclear bomb. It doesn't work that way. Boomers just are not willing to get it. They're too emotionally attached to the word nuclear means it's scary and it could blow up the whole planet. What he's finding is that the, if you go to younger generations, they have a completely different attitude. They don't understand what it is because they've been conditioned by especially a lot of liberal politics to believe nuclear is bad and it's not green and so forth. But as soon as you explain it to them, all of a sudden they become pro nuclear almost instantly. They don't have the same emotional resistance that boomers do. So Mark's theory is that the new generations are going to be much more open to this. So in terms of, you know, did they make mistakes? Uh, I don't think we made any mistake with having nuclear energy. What we could do is upgrade all of, you know, we've got this pro and anti-nuclear, either it's good or it's bad. Well, wait a minute. What if we really looked at it objectively and said nuclear energy is really, really good, but the nuclear plants built in the 1950s and 60s and early seventies are all based on some really antiquated technology. They need they need automated safety systems. They need passive safety systems that don't depend on backup generators. They, they need a lot of improvements. You could engineer refits of existing nuclear power plants in order to dramatically increase their safety by bringing them up to what's now called Generation 3 plus safety standards. Nobody's focused on that because nobody thinks about it. Nobody's got a way to make a buck on that. But I think that there's plenty of room to correct the deficiencies that exist in nuclear power. Instead, we're decommissioning these perfectly good nuclear power plants, which is crazy. They, you know, We spent a fortune building them, more than we needed to, frankly. There were a lot of, uh, lot of corruption in those projects of the 60s and 70s. Um, we could do a much better job. And I think that getting away from bespoke on-site construction and building all of the modules in factories on fully robotic assembly and test lines is the way of the
3: future. Can you build these SMRs and put them in the middle of the desert like Nevada or New Mexico, or do they have to be near water for cooling? It depends.
1: If you use the old school nuclear technology, what we call a pressurized water reactor, you really need to have a big source of coolant water. If you use molten salt rather than water as the reactor core coolant, you can design uh, a molten salt reactor that operates in the desert, and it doesn't need any adjacent ocean or river in order to cool it.
3: I mean, I think that's the big problem is that on the coast is, is the big blue states, and they're not going to do this thing. So you got to put them somewhere away from populations. Yeah, the so I molten is, salt yeah. technology—it's—it's it, it's amazing to me. What the molten's—the the
1: history of this. 1951 is when we first demonstrated electricity from nuclear energy. By 1958, they figured out that meltdowns and particularly hydrogen explosions, which are both uh, a result of using water as the core coolant, th- those were the big problems. So they commissioned a project called the Molten Salt Reactor Experiment. The idea was, what if we used molten salt instead of water as the reactor core coolant? Well, they did this project in the 1960s. By 1964, they had built a molten salt cooled nuclear reactor, which solved all of those problems. Just a a brilliant solution to that problem. What happens uh, after that? They realized that it's a huge threat to the oil and gas industry, and for purely political reasons, they fire the guy that was running the program and cancel the entire project, and they order the destruction of all of the research that my parents' tax dollars paid for. The engineers were so pissed off, they refused to, to follow orders. They snuck all of the research documents out of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory and hid them in the basement of a children's museum near Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they sat for like 50 or 40 years until this NASA uh, researcher named Kirk Sorensen found out about it. And just before those documents would have been destroyed, he scanned them all and published them. And that was essentially the catalyst that allowed the birth of an entirely new industry to commercialize this uh, molten salt reactor technology. And I've got, in the docu-series, in episode six of Energy Transition Crisis, I play a phone call between President Nixon and Congressman Craig Hosmer, where they basically conspire to kill this just groundbreaking new research. Why? Because it was invented in the wrong state. All of the best nuclear research happened in Tennessee in the 1960s. Nixon and all of the congressmen who were in charge of the Atomic Energy Commission were Californians. They had a project in Southern California called the Liquid Metal Fast Breeder Reactor. They wanted to use that project to benefit California's economy. So they killed the good research and got rid of the the best designs that we ever had. And then uh, subsequent to that, the CEO of Texaco basically bribed them to, uh, to, to kill the nuclear power industry. And it really is true that we had the solution to this whole energy crisis by the early 1970s. When the Nixon administration figured out that we had a solution, they ordered the destruction of all of the research that taxpayer uh, dollars had paid for in order to kill it. And thankfully, the researchers refused to destroy their work and hid it where it stayed hidden for 40 years. And it's now been discovered. And what's happened is the U.S. government still has its uh, head stuck you know where, but the Chinese government has taken that research that came from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and run with it. So there's only two molten salt-cooled uh, thorium-fueled nuclear reactors that have ever been built, so far as I know. One was built in 1964 in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and one was built in 2018 in uh, Gansu City in uh, the... Wei city in Gansu province in China. So the Chinese are way ahead of us. They have taken the research that our government tried to throw away. They've run with it and they've already built a molten salt-cooled, thorium-fueled reactor. They see the same energy future that I see. And my fear is if they completely get the lead, they're going to control energy for the next 100 years we we need to take the research that our parents tax dollars paid for and we need to start using it for ourselves not just giving it away to china
2: so part of the reason harley hold your harley when you're muted um part of the reason why i want to emphasize this is is that you know the actual technology we see many of the questions being asked for example around the cancellation of the new scale project by in utah today right mm-hmm. um One new scale is SMRs of light water reactor design, as I understand it correctly. It's not molten salt. It's the only mechanism. And this is, of course, the challenge. One of the charts that Eric has is basically the challenge is that we need a world-class regulator who is actually thoughtful about what we're trying to accomplish and looks at that very first chart and says, exactly as we're discussing, Harley, it's not just an efficiency story. This is actually a reason, if we had that same efficiency gains relative to a dramatic increase in energy, we could do all sorts of stuff that would benefit the environment far more, right? So I gave examples of how far you could travel, but I'll give you another really simple one, right? When we think about agriculture, the difference between agriculture that is grown in the open air using sunlight and agriculture that is grown in growing conditions that are man-made, fully controlled, et cetera, is literally orders of magnitude. The reason we don't do it is because the energy costs so much currently. So the few, there's only a very few number of crops where we actually devote the resources to doing it, one of which is the world's biggest cash crop on that front or the most profitable crop, marijuana. Right. The difference in productivity between marijuana that's grown on a open air farm and marijuana that's grown under growing lights and growing conditions is literally 100 times more productive per acre. You could you with, you know, unlimited energy, the type of energy that we're talking about here, you could literally turn around and say, hey, let's turn Nebraska into a playground. And now you actually start to understand one of the, instead of a, you know, a place where we're depleting aquifers, you know, you actually start to understand why there's the opposition to this stuff, because nobody really actually wants that future or many of the interests don't actually want that future. Eric highlighted that the dynamics of Texaco. When you start talking about the Midwest, you know, people want to grow corn for energy. That's crazy. This is totally insane. So you know we're, we we are literally looking at the solution directly in front of us, and we're unprepared to jump for it. Um, Eric has another great slide that I wanted to share here, which is highlighting this issue of willpower. And a number of people have asked about, you know well, could we take nuclear technology from submarines? Eric, I'd love your thoughts on that. My understanding is, again, there are some issues associated with technology and submarines but it is functionally the same underlying observation.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first point I want to make about this slide is a lot of people will tell you that that my overall plan, which is to completely replace fossil fuels before 2050 with uh, gigawatt power plants, mostly that are constructed out of small modular reactors made on assembly lines. People say, oh, it's so ambitious. How are you ever going to get all that done? Look, when the government wants to make something happen, we got from the first demonstration of nuclear electricity, those four light bulbs you see on the left-hand picture. I mean, they're literally jury-rigged up there. It looks like somebody hung them off of a string or something. Um, that was the laboratory where they first demonstrated that you could make electricity from nuclear. Four years later, the USS Nautilus went to sea carrying sailors in the Navy off on their mission. They actually entered service with a nuclear submarine four years after the very first demonstration of electricity from nuclear. We can; It's, it's going to take a lot less engineering to completely solve energy transition and climate change and everything else than it took to do that. It's not that big of a deal. We just need to get the government out of the way. And the question... Okay.
2: Well, I, I was going to say, we have examples of this in the private sector, right? I mean, the process of building a McDonald's restaurant can be done in 24 hours, for God's sakes, right?
1: And and it takes, you know, this is the, the, the point here really is it takes seven to 10 years to build a conventional nuclear power plant. The way that McDonald's builds a restaurant in 24 hours is by having modules that were pre-manufactured in factories, and all you have to do is click them together like a, a Lego or an erector set or something. If we go to the next slide, you can build a gigawatt power plant. This is a a slide from Copenhagen Atomics, one of those companies, which is the pet project of billionaires because it's difficult for a company like this to get institutional financing because what they're doing is too leading edge. But they're showing here how you can build a gigawatt power plant out of about 25 small modular reactors, each one in the form of a shipping container. And the building that it's contained in doesn't have to be made out of nuclear concrete, doesn't have to be built to nuclear construction standards. So you could build that building just like McDonald's builds a, a a restaurant. There, There's a little more to a nuclear power plant than there is to a McDonald's restaurant. So I'm saying you can do it in less than a year as opposed to seven to 10 years to build a conventional nuclear power plant. And all of the parts can show up on, on a container ship All of the nuclear reactors come in the form of shipping containers. They get plugged into those tubes. And before you know it, you've got a gigawatt power plant. Um, We need to get to that style of construction. And and the reason we can't do that today is all of the technology that these guys want to propose is too advanced. It's 1960s technology rather than the 1950s technology that the regulators know how to regulate. China gets it.
3: They're ahead of us.
2: I can't well, tell
3: well, if it's well, me, that's frozen or everybody that? else. Um, Eric, let's say China goes totally nuclear, doesn't that free up all the oil to go to us at a lower price? Well, uh,
1: it depends. If you, if you are on a climate change agenda, then it would free up all of the oil for us to continue polluting while they don't pollute, and that would make us look kind of bad. But I'm concerned about getting... I, on one hand, that would temporarily maybe reduce energy costs, but eventually we'd be using all of that oil and gas. And I, I want to get to limitless, uh, you know, not dependent on any finite resource, cheaper energy that costs less than energy from oil and gas costs today. The way you do that is modular reactors and modular power plants and the ability to build them quickly. And I think we can do all of that if we get uh, if we get the government out of the way of progress, which is where we stand today.
3: Circling back to your concept of, 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 uh, it's politicians who are doing it. I mean, I would argue it's more like a Daniel Kahneman kind of thing where people have misplaced risk, like people are more scared of shark bites or lightning than they are of being in a taxi and not wearing a seatbelt when the reality is, you know, that's, that's the most dangerous thing to do. What would it take to, I mean, congressmen or politicians, they have one goal, not to help society. To get reelected so how would you actually go and make this happen don't you have to convince the people not the politicians well i think what we need let's start with what the,
1: the need is we need to completely just uh get rid of the bureaucracy of the nuclear regulatory commission and replace it with a new entity that's focused on being part of the solution rather than part of the problem as far as i'm concerned the nuclear regulatory commission has done an outstanding job of fulfilling the mission for which it was originally created. But I'm convinced that that real mission was to make damn sure that nuclear energy in the United States could never be price competitive with oil and gas. And they've achieved that goal flawlessly. We, need, we the people need to demand that that goal be replaced by a new nuclear energy commission. And I don't think you can reform the one we have. It's so badly broken. Uh, we need a new one, which is focused on being part of the solution. The Idaho National Laboratory is actually showing a few signs of wanting to be part of the solution. They're they're starting to uh, promote new reactor designs, and they've got a a program called ENRIC, the National Reactor Innovation Center, which is chartered to help uh, entrepreneurs test new reactor designs and so forth. But frankly, it's too little too late. They don't, it's too small of a program. What we need is a president of the United States who says, look, our whole energy transition solution is going to center on being the leaders in uh, modularized nuclear technology. We're going to get past the pressurized water reactors that have meltdown risk and that have the risk of hydrogen explosions. We're gonna move to molten salt reactors that eliminate all of those risks we're going to modularize it so that we can build these power plants in seven to 10 months instead of seven to 10 years. And we're going to not have this guy in charge of the uh, of the new agency.
2: I, I, I actually, I mean, this is actually part of the point, Harley. I do want people, I want everyone listening to this thing to go watch Eric's energy transition, to do a little bit of research on this sort of stuff, or simply understand how bad this is, right? This is the head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Christopher Hansen. His qualifications largely involve his master's degree from Yale Divinity School and Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I mean, come on, guys. He's better
1: qualified to pray for no more uh, accidents in the aging and poorly designed nuclear power plants we have than anyone else, because he's got an Ivy League Divinity School degree, Mike. So he can pray better than you can.
2: I absolutely agree and that is like if we want to have the head prayer kumbaya group put this guy in charge but if we actually want to get this stuff done you have to make clear we are a voting populace make clear to the politicians that you do not support them unless they support nuclear this has to change and we have all the signs that we had from the 1950s we've had our Sputnik moment The Sputnik moment has already arrived, as Eric is referring to it. It is here. It is China has an operating permit issued for a molten salt reactor. They are on the way, right? This is no different than having launched, you know, Sputnik into space, setting off the space race, and 15 years later...
1: I'm going to say it's very, very different. When Sputnik was launched, the U.S. government noticed in three milliseconds, and all of a sudden, the single most important thing to everybody in Washington was, holy shit, we're behind, how do we catch up? Nobody noticed that China has built and is now ready to operate a a molten salt-cooled thorium-fueled reactor. The U.S. government is completely out of touch.
2: Well, I, I, I would... Highlight that part of the reason why that happened is not because we had one or another party in office, but we actually had an individual who had a history of dealing with these types of issues. We had Dwight Eisenhower in, in, in office at that point in time. We actually decided we were going to change stuff and do things. It can happen. I don't care what your political alignment is. Make sure that you know what is actually going on because it is nonsense. It's total nonsense, and it's hurting your life, and it's hurting your children. And to Eric's point, this is actually different, because if we create conditions under which the surplus that we enjoy in the United States is replaced by a surplus that exists in countries that behave in manners that are antithetical to us, you do not win cultural wars on the basis of being poorer but more noble. It just doesn't work that way. You got to get richer and more powerful in order to solve this stuff. And I I actually have a pushback against Eric. You know, my whole thing is replace fossil fuels. Forget it. I want more. I want more energy. I want more that we can do. I don't want pollution because we can actually solve pollution with more energy. Right. Remediating landfills, recycling, they all require more energy and the luxury to spend it in ways like that. Not everyone wants to travel to the moon and back twice in a year. In fact, I think I'd settle for going once every two years. But the simple reality is, is that we're not using, we don't have the energy to waste. We're so caught up in this nonsense that we're destroying the world that we're not actually thinking about how to make it a better place. Um,
3: Look, But looking at, 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 you were talking about the politics and, and generations Are you kind of implying that this will happen in 20 years when the boomers are all dead and the millennials take over because they are more comfortable with nuclear power?
1: Well, I think that what needs to happen, and I'm trying to do everything that I can to be part of it, is we need to wake the world up to what's at stake and how important it is to have a nuclear renaissance that's based on the good nuclear technology, not the aging nuclear technology. All the fears that people have, and I think some of those fears are well justified, are are about the inherent risks of pressurized water reactors. The, The fact that you can have a meltdown accident, the fact that you can have a hydrogen explosion, that you can have core depressurization accidents, loss of coolant accidents. You can solve all of those problems with molten salt uh, and liquid-fueled reactors, which are load-following, and and you just get a... a, There's much better technology, which has been known for 50 years, and it's never been commercialized because the government has stood in the way. We need to get the people to understand that. And I think Mark Nelson is onto something, that younger generations are not hung up on nuclear power equals nuclear uh, bomb and so if you can give them credible information and put it in front of them which is what i'm trying to do with energy transition crisis then you can maybe get the public support we need to say we need a nuclear renaissance that's based on the good nuclear technology the the, the doing it the right way the next thing though is you need to find a place. Right now, the entire advanced nuclear industry is basically stalled for lack of capital. Why doesn't anybody want to invest in it with institutional money? Because these guys want to build machines that are not legal to operate in any country on Earth and which no nuclear regulator on Earth knows how to regulate. What I'm working on right now is a pitch deck, which I'm going to take to as many sovereign governments as will listen to me, which basically says, look, if you want to be on the leading edge of energy transition, and I don't care if, you know, my primary motive for this is I want cheaper energy than what we can get from coal and gas. For most people, especially politicians, their motive is going to be climate change and getting rid of, uh, of carbon emissions. Fine, pick your motive, but we still need to get to where is the real bottleneck here? The bottleneck, is there's no place on earth where any of these entrepreneurs that know how to build the technology that can save the future for us and for future generations, there's no place for them to take their prototype of a new modular you know, thorium-fueled molten salt reactor. Where are you gonna test it? There's no place where you're allowed to turn the thing on even to test it right now. We need a, a, a combination of a, a, a much better nuclear regulator, And someplace on this planet, there only needs to be one, where there's a a small modular nuclear reactor test and certification facility, where you can take your SMR and say, okay, we got this thing to where we think we're ready to start it up, we're going to have some regulators look at it, make sure we're not doing anything that's unsafe, we're going to fuel it, we're going to start it up, we're going to test it, we're going to make sure it works, and if it works well, we're going to ask that regulator to certify it for us. The only sovereign governments can do this. Sovereign governments never do anything until somebody hands them a plan on a silver platter that says, Mr. Politician, if you wanna be successful, here's a plan, you do X, Y, and Z, and you're gonna be successful despite yourself. I wanna hand them that plan. I wanna come up with a plan for how to design a much better nuclear regulator that's ready to be part of the energy transition solution rather than the problem which is what the NRC is in the United States. And I wanna hand that plan to politicians, but I wanna do that in a very public way. I wanna do it through you know, YouTube videos and documentary series and so forth, so that there's a whole younger generation that's plugged into YouTube where the voters know what the plan is. And they're saying to the politicians, Why don't we have an SMR certification and test facility where the entrepreneurs that know how to build the energy solutions of tomorrow can test their products and get them certified? And what are you, Mr. Politician, gonna do to fix that problem? Right now, nobody understands this. Energy Transition Crisis, which was my low-budget YouTube documentary series, is my first attempt at trying to communicate that message to as many people as will listen to it. My next attempt... Uh, the project that I'm working on now will be a pitch for what it would take to design a completely different style of nuclear regulator, which wants to be part of the energy transition solution rather than being an impediment.
3: Eric, your you're, you're, you're background, you're, you're an oil trader. Um, yep. So two, two, a horizontal segue, two questions here. One is, how does your views on nuclear impact your views on the price of oil? And secondly, it seems to me the transition from oil to nuclear is either going to happen because the price of oil goes up by so much, the, the economics force you, or the idea that the, the greens want to go and, and and stop pollution, and that's your avenue. W- which of those two avenues, and then how do you link your views here to oil prices, and what's going to happen to oil? You've got the exact,
1: uh, you've perfectly stated the the problem, and I agree with everything you just said. I try to work both of those in parallel. Part of the message of energy transition crisis is if you've got a green agenda, you want to solve climate change, the way to do that is with a nuclear renaissance based on what's called advanced nuclear, generation four nuclear, where we get rid of the the meltdowns and the hydrogen explosions and all those problems. Uh, If you want, but unfortunately, as you and I know, Harley, the way the world advances is from one crisis to the next. Episode three of energy transition crisis is all about why I think it's inevitable that we're headed before this decade is out to an oil and gas energy crisis that's going to cripple the global economy. What I'm trying to do is get the world, especially younger people, to understand before that crisis hits what the solution is. And the solution is a nuclear renaissance based on fast build modular nuclear technology.
3: But if you're so smart, why is the oil calendar spread like negative 10 to $15. Talking about
1: why is the backwardation in the, in the, yeah, I mean, I mean,
3: if, if you're so smart and there's going to be a, 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 a lack of energy, a lack of oil going few, forward, shouldn't that forward price be going up then? No, not really. Because back, I mean, that's it.
1: one of the most misunderstood things about backwardation is that the market is not really predicting the future, future price of oil. There, there's a, there's a, a demand for oil that's, all, you know, here and now demand, a scarcity demand, which causes backwardation in the market. It's not the case that the backwardation is predicting that prices go down in the future. The, the backwardation is only indicating that we have a scarcity. I expect that scarcity to get worse. And it may get better, you know, in the short run. And we're probably about to have a big recession that recession will will quash demand, and you know energy prices might go down if we don't uh, nuke Iran or something, which would take a few million barrels offline. If Lindsey Graham gets his wish and, and we flatten uh, uh, Iran, that's going to change the picture. But we will get through you know the next couple of years. Eventually, we're running out of spare capacity. We're going to have an oil and gas energy crisis, which I think will be the catalyst that forces us to say, OK, shit, what are we going to do next? The answer has been staring us in the face ever since we canceled all of the best nuclear research back in 1971. We need to get back on the solution path that we were on in 1971. And if we can do that, we can solve this whole problem. And we can do it with the latest and greatest technology. It's not that hard, but there's a lot of uh, moneyed interests that have been standing in the way for the last 50 years.
3: Well, and before the clock runs out, I want to get my licks in over here. Why don't you tell Mike why he's wrong about inflation?
1: Well, Mike, uh, if he disagrees with you on inflation, I'm going to go with his view without even knowing what it is.
2: <laughs> well done, Eric. Well done. Yeah, look, the, the the simple reality, Harley, and I've acknowledged this, is there is a path to much higher inflation. Jay Powell has worked very hard to get us there. He's effectively raised the cost of capital and prevented the Creation of surplus that solves the problem. We've slowed down and and dramatically reduced the number of homes that we're building. As a result, there will be housing shortages. We have dramatically slowed down the process of investing in things like nuclear power. So, therefore, we will ultimately face challenges associated with this. it it doesn't work the way he thinks it does. Hiking interest rates is a way to slow the economy, but slowing investment and slowing the the discovery of things for the future is not the solution set to it. So again, I see a path in which we can have much higher prices. And I hope Eric is wrong that we need to have an energy crisis in order to get the incentive to do this. It's part of the reason why I focus on the benefits of more, right? There is no reason we have to replace all of the fossil fuels, or even for that matter, why we have to embrace making renewables 35% of it. My answer is really straightforward. I want more. I want more for my kids. I want more for your grandchildren. I want more for everyone because that's the way we make life better. So um, with that said, I do think it's really important for people to understand that what we're really dealing with here is the discussion around energy density. I encourage you guys, we're gonna make the slides available Um, Eric's presentation on YouTube is astonishing. Um, Also several other people, Kirk Sorensen has done some fantastic work out there, et cetera. I would just encourage people to educate yourselves about this and focus on a world that is better. Don't focus on a world in which we try to go backwards. The solution set is not to reduce the 8 billion people in the world. The solution set is to provide the opportunity to turn that into 8 trillion. With that, I'll hand it back over to Eric. Thank you very much, everyone. Eric Townsend, really appreciate you having you joining us for this.
1: Thanks so much, Mike. And if I can just add, the URL is uh, www.energytransitioncrisis.org. It's an eight-part series. It's all YouTube videos. It's completely free. Episodes five, six, and seven are the nuclear episodes, but the, you know the whole series is about energy transition, and uh, I, th- I think people might enjoy the whole thing but five six and seven are the nuclear episodes
2: excellent yeah definitely go check it out it's a heck of a series so thanks again to everybody for watching and tuning in
1: join us next month on the 14th of december as we bring chris whalen to talk about the
0: banking system we'll see you next time Simplify Asset Management Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and client's results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.